Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Yuri Kirichok, who is Professor of Physiology at the University of California, San Francisco. His lab studies mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. Welcome, Yuri. Thank you, Gil. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So we have a couple of um, technical papers we want to discuss, but before we get into it, I want to sort of set the context. Um, so your lab is doing a lot of work in this area of mitochondria. Could you describe what mitochondria is in the cell and what it does? Well, yes, you know, mitochondria are little organelles inside the cell, and they're responsible, you know, for energy production. So they supply a uh, cell, you know, with pretty much all the energy it has. So, and the way how it works, you know, um, our body or our, in our cells, you know, they kind of, you know, like, you know, like a um, special type of, uh, um, I would say, uh, automobile or something like that. Um, and they run only on very high, kind of, you know, uh, on fuel of the highest purity, I would say, okay? So how you can imagine. And uh, and only one, okay? So it's not that, you know, it can accept the different types of fuel, okay? Like a premium premium gasoline or something like that. So, and mitochondria, what it does, you know, when we eat all those different types of food, okay? So it takes all that food and has to convert this into this type, very specific type of gasoline that our body consumes, right? So and this is what mitochondria does. It just takes the energy out of food and converts it into the energy of a special molecule, which called adenosine triphosphate. So, and this is the gasoline that our body runs. So, so it's it, part of the cell, and it, it is really sort of producing the energy needed for the cell to function. Yeah, and and it's doing so by uh, really taking the the nutrients um, uh, from the bloodstream and then converting that into something that the cell can utilize. Yes, exactly, because you know these nutrients from the bloodstream cannot actually fuel the cell. Yes, so all 
time machine reactions in our body, they all run on a single type of fuel, ATP, or adenosine triphosphate. So, and this is what mitochondria have to produce, you know, from those nutrients, you know, from the bloodstream. Yeah. So, is this uh, is this uh, present in all types of animals, all cells? Yes, or in eukaryotic cells, you know, it's present. Yes, like bacteria, which do not have mitochondria, they have, you know, a mechanism, you know, basically, which kind of, you know, bacteria actually, you know, they uh, relatives of mitochondria or mitochondrial relatives of bacteria. So bacteria which do not have mitochondria, they sort of, you know, run like mitochondria themselves. They can actually take, you know, all these nutrients, you know, from the environment and convert them into a single source of energy, ATP, right? So, but for cells, you know, what, what at some particular, so people think that, you know, very long time ago, like <laughs> years and years, a billion of years ago, so we uh, a, a kind of, you know, a kind of, you know, a type of bacteria uh, has been engulfed was engulfed you know, by a cell, eukaryotic cell. And uh, this eukaryotic cell started to use you know, this bacteria to produce energy. Okay, produce ATP. Yeah. So that's yeah. how the bacteria do not have, uh, do not have uh, mitochondria, they just do it themselves. Yeah, so the single cell organisms didn't have it. So evolutionarily, this is a big innovation um, that allowed more complex multicellular organi organisms to, uh, to happen, right? So in some sense, some some, some uh, 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 organisms just one cell. They still have mitochondria sometimes. Yeah. So it's not you know that um, this transition um, kind of you know, necessarily implies you know that organism has to multi has to be multicellular. I think you know it's overall kind of you know um, uh, maybe an adaptation which allowed you know to process you know more type of. I don't know, you know, it's just maybe specialization or something like that in the organelles, you know, it's sometimes it's difficult to kind of, you know, understand, you know, what kind of, you know, advantage that would help for, for monocellular organism, but it does, you know, for certain organisms. I think, you know, it's just adaptation to a special environment where those cells, you know, grow or live, right, you know, which kind of, you know, made sense for them to take up mitochondria inside and live with them. And so, uh, in human cells, uh, I would imagine different parts of the body, uh, different cells and different organs and different parts of the body, they all have different concentrations or different numbers of mitochondria? Yes, right. So heart, for example, has a very high amount of mitochondria. It's about almost like 40% of the volume of the cell. But other cells, you know, skeletal muscle has only about 5%. Um, yeah, so, and it varies significantly. In addition to that, mitochondria from different tissues are not identical. They have, you know, certain differences between them, which makes them suitable, you know, to serve a particular type of cell. And so I guess it's a function of how much energy the cell is demanding, right? Uh, so it's almost like um, for certain cells, you need the, you know, the big uh, electricity <laughs> lines, and for others, you can uh, run with a battery and so on. So it's sort of the function right. of the cell and the energy demand, I would think, right? Yes, right. And in addition to that, you know, mitochondria, they also source, you know, of different metabolites, you know, which might be needed, you know, for some other purpose. So like, you know, for example, steroid hormones are generated, you know, initially by mitochondria. So it also depends on if this particular cell type you know, needs you know, a particular type of um, metabolite which is produced you know, uh, by 
uh, by mitochondria. So uh, mitochondria in, in kind of you know energy production is a primary function of mitochondria, but they also a very rich source you know, of different metabolic substrates. Okay, so which certain cell types you know, may need more than others. So and that's also kind of you know, may dictate you know what kind of mitochondria are inside a particular cell type. Right. Right. So th this is a this is a very important aspect. Um, and so if it is not working properly, I would imagine all sorts of different types of diseases uh, could happen, right? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, we have you know many many mitochondrial disorders that has been identified. You know, so mutations those are usually mutations in certain mitochondrial proteins. And it's very interesting that um, so the whole well, kind of, you know, mitochondria have about 2,000 proteins in them. Okay, so and among those 2,000 proteins, you know, only few actually kind of produced in mitochondria. So mitochondria usually depends, you know, on production of the proteins which are required for, for the activity on, on the cell actually. Okay, so. And mutations can be either in cellular DNA or in mitochondrial DNA. So uh, a lot of a lot of mitochondrial kind of you know, kind of give different diseases you know caused you know, by mutations in mitochondrial DNA. But as much you can say about about mutations in the uh, nuclear DNA of the cell as well, which cause mitochondrial dysfunction. So and those are very well known, and some of them are very heavy. So, so mitochondria have their own DNA. And then, so if you look inside the cell, the different mitochondrium that we will see, they all have different types of DNA, or are all the same? No, you know they they have you know the same. So and we inherit this you know from our mother. So it's very interesting. So it doesn't come you know from fathers. It comes from a mother, from the mother basically. And uh, just because you know, so sperm uh, mitochondrial DNA gets destructed basically uh, after fertilization, and the organism, you know, developing organism only inherits, you know, mitochondria from the egg. So this is what happens. So it's very interesting. Yeah. 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 I, I remember National Geographic had a program. Uh, I think it is sunset now. That if you send a, you know, um, a sample of your saliva, they can look at the migratory paths um, that both your father and mother separately. And on the mother's side, because it is uh, mitochondria come, is coming only from the mother, they could actually look at again disease progression uh, on the on the mother's side uh, to look at uh, look at you know progression from all the way, so they can trace it back all the way to Africa fifty thousand years ago. Exactly and right. Which clans you were part of? <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah, I know. I know. This is fascinating. Yeah. So, um, so the mechanisms um, inside the mitochondria. So you mentioned ADP. So th this is a chemical ADP. that. So ADP, ADP is this is this is adenosine diphosphate, and this is a molecule which actually sort of you know uh, which is produced by the body after it consumes you know the energy of ATP. So we have adenosine triphosphate, which is actual fuel, and ADP. This is, you know, what basically what what is produced, you know, how the molecule of ATP get used up, basically, and then ADP is imported into mitochondria to attach, you know, the third phosphate, basically, and make, you know, this again ATP. So, you know, mitochondria they continuously convert ADP into ATP, okay, and deliver ATP into cytosol. 
So ATP is, is sort of the energy, um, energy storage, right? So, so mitochondria produces ATP. Uh, uh, let me know if this is right, if I understand this correctly. And um, when the energy is used, uh, you, you have ADP that can then be converted back into ATP at a later time by using more energy, right? Right, right. And so, uh, I mean, it's a, so, so I know there's some history around, do we really know how the, the mitochondrium started all the way back in the evolutionary cycle? Yes, right, you know, they were bacteria at some particular moment. And bacteria, they actually have, you know, mechanisms for energy production, which is reminiscent of mitochondrial energy production. They have, you know, uh, even some similarities, you know, between specific proteins within them, bacteria and mitochondria. But bacteria can, you know, look, you know, much more simple, okay, than, so they obviously, you know, uh, yeah, so bacteria, bacteria, well, you know, it just, yeah, okay, uh, mitochondria, they um, have, uh, like this kind of you know, proteins which are responsible for energy production within mitochondria. Uh, let's say, like, you now I'll give you one example. For example, complex one of the uh, electron transport chain, which is it's one of the kind of major molecules which are responsible for energy production in mitochondria and bacteria. So, uh, you know, in my, my mitochondria has uh, more than 40 different subunits within that complex, but bacteria has only 16. Okay, so bacteria kind of, you know, they are less sophisticated example of like energy production machinery or like, you know, or like, you know, this kind of, you know, um, uh, power plant, I would say, than our mitochondria. Because, you know, in our mitochondria, uh, the cell provides, you know, additional proteins to mitochondria and modifies basically, which insert themselves, you know, into this machinery for energy production, incorporates it, and perhaps impart, you know, certain types of uh, specific regulation, cell-specific regulation, and maybe more complexity, so that, you know, our energy production machinery basically can respond, you know, to particular needs of our body and ourselves, okay? So that's how, like, you know, yes, so it's it's just basically a more sophisticated yeah. energy yeah. production machinery. Right, right. I know that we're going to talk about this a little later in the paper. Uh, so again, mechanistically, when this ATP production happens, um, there is there is also heat being generated. What 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 is sort of the mechanism there? Yes, yeah, so that's that's kind of you know, interesting. So mitochondria they do not only produce ATP. I, I told you that you know they only produce ATP previously, and this is what people kind of you know, primarily focus on. But energy wise, energy wise, you know they produce actually two forms of energy: ATP, which serves as a fuel for our body, and heat which makes us warm, okay? So helps, you know, basically to support body temperature. Mm -hmm. So, and this is basically what mitochondria are responsible for. And some mitochondria, they are producing primarily ATP, the fuel, like for example, those mitochondria in uh, heart and skeletal muscle. But some mitochondria, they focus, you know, from heat production. We have a specialized um, issue in our body, which is called brown fat. The brown fat uh, is specialized organ which is kind of you know, heats up our blood in essence okay so blood vessels go you know through that organ and it generates heat by itself you know and heats blood so and then the blood goes you know throughout our body and kind of you know maintains body temperature so brown fat mitochondria 
they specifically designed, you know, they specifically work to produce heat, not ATP. They produce just a little bit of ATP and primarily heat. So in, in principle, you wouldn't even say that, you know, you couldn't get, you know, this general statement that mitochondria are primarily existing for heat, excuse me, for ATP production, because, you know, some of them actually are so different, you know, from others that they focus on heat production. Mm -hmm. And th that's a critical function, too. We have to keep the body at some specific temperature. Right. Um, and so you have a paper here, um, Yuri, so mechanism of fatty acid-dependent UCP1 uncoupling in brown fat mitochondria. So you, you, you mentioned brown fat mitochondria. So what exactly is the UCP1, uh, UCP1 uncoupling uh, that happens? Uncoupling, what it uncouples? It uncouples um, burning of food from ATP production. So what it does, you know, it actually, in essence, you know, so normally mitochondria would produce ATP from food, right? So, but uh, UCP1 uncouples that connection and makes, you know, food to be converted into heat instead, instead of ATP, okay? So this is what it does. So it's, you know, that's how, you know, it's called uncoupling protein, okay? Because it's uncoupling between uh, food oxidation or food burning and production of ATP, okay? So, but, you know, mechanistically what it does, it introduces a particular type of current because in mitochondria they run on electricity. So, and uh, this uncoupling protein one, it introduces in a particular type of proton current into the circuitry of mitochondria, which is responsible for energy production. As if like, you know, it's short circuits, you know, mitochondria in a way and make mitochondria produce heat. So, um... So can you take any mitochondrium and uh, essentially make it uh, produce heat rather than ATP? Yes, right. So this is this is the case as well. Because brown fat mitochondria uh, kind of channels, you know, pretty much, you know, 100% of uh, food oxidation, energy of food oxidation into heat. Um, other mitochondria, like heart mitochondria, skeletal muscle mitochondria, they channel primarily all energy normally into um, ATP production, but not all energy. About 20% of energy in skeletal muscle, for example, is actually goes, you know, to heat production, okay? So, and we can, in principle, make it even more. So we can sort of, you know, because in essence, skeletal muscle mitochondria can produce, you know, much more than it produces at rest, you know, when we see, okay? When we run, it can produce, you know, 10 times more energy, okay? So this is how, like, you know, much, you know, the energy kind of, you know, output of mitochondria can change. And in principle, we can increase heat production by the skeletal muscle mitochondria when we see it without even disruption of ATP production. Because, you know, mitochondrial energy sort of capacity would be able to accommodate both loads, right? And we can make, you know, skeletal muscle mitochondria producing more heat and still produce ATP, you know, for whatever we need. So, and, you know, this is a way to lose energy or burn fat, for example. Because you know, we just increase energy production and dissipate uh, heat into environment, you know, like burn calories. This is how, you know, <laughs> kind of you know, the, the simplest way to explain this. So, so because the body has to keep, uh, I don't know much about this, Yuri, I'm just, uh, just asking. Uh, because the body has to keep at some specific temperature, if, if mitochondria start to produce a lot of heat, that the body has to take evasive action <laughs> to get the heat out of the system, right? Yeah, and that's definitely mitochondrial heat production is not the only mechanism of regulation of body temperature. 
So it's it has kind of you know the, the system is a little bit more complex than that. So mitochondria produce heat, but our skin constantly dissipate kind of you know kind of gives up it gives out you know that heat into the environment. So and by increasing the or dilating blood vessels in the skin, we can actually dissipate more heat. So what normally happens, you know, uh, when mitochondria increases heat production, the blood vessels will dilate and we dissipate more as well. So it's kind of, you know, it's it's mechanism which controls, you know, both production of heat and also dissipation of heat, you know, so the body temperature stays constant and everything is controlled by brain. It measures temperatures everywhere and makes sure that, you know, everything kind of, you know, the whole system sort of, you know, works, you know, as a whole uh, coherently and harmoniously. Yeah. And so E is E equal to MC squared. So if the body can create heat and dissipate heat, um, I could that this could be used to uh, reduce weight. Weight, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly true. So it's not that you know, we necessarily need you know um, kind of you know this you know the theory of relativity to understand you know everything uh, <laughs> about about heat production in mitochondria, but you are you know in essence right. <laughs> and and so I know that your lab is working on this this idea. Um, so obviously we have a big problem um, in the US and most of the Western countries with obesity. Um, generally speaking, obesity uh, leads to a whole sort of metabolic diseases, uh, diabetes, hypertension, and so on. So is this a mechanism we can use to tackle obesity? Yes, totally. Uh, so what, what basically, if you take a look at the current approach, you know, how people are trying to control weight, uh, everybody right away, like, you know, would think about diet and exercise. But you no, know, a heat dissipation is, you know, normally is a third way to lose weight. So, and it has been used, you know, by our ancestors, you know, uh, on a regular basis, you know, as they were even in caves and we were kind of, you know, cold and we were sort of burning a lot of uh, food, you know, just to heat themselves up and keep body temperature at 37 degrees. So now when we are exposed you know, to this comfortable living temperatures, uh, we are using this mechanism much less. So, and in principle, you know, we would perhaps you know, want to compensate for that. And um, in addition to dieting and exercise, it would be great you know, to develop, you know, some sort of, you know, therapeutic intervention, which would help us you know, to increase heat production by our bodies as it was in the past. So that would help you know, to lose weight. And perhaps you know, it can be used alone just by itself or in combination with diet and exercise and would increase kind of, you know, capacity of uh, our body to stay you know, within a certain uh, weight range. Because, you know, usually the problem is, you know, with diet and exercise, you know, you lose weight and then you gain it again, you lose it, you know, gain it again. So I, I hope, you know, that when we introduce, you know, the third missing component, we would be able to achieve more sustained and more profound weight loss for many people. Yeah, it's very attractive. I, I don't know the metrics, Yuri. My my understanding is that it's really difficult to lose weight by exercising um, because the, the amount of energy that you're spending in the grand scheme of things is not as high. Dieting is more effective, but this mechanism is potentially much more efficient, right? If, if we can essentially radiate heat away, 
you could potentially lose. Uh, no, it, it's so attractive to say, uh, take something, go to bed, and uh, when you wake up, it'll be five pounds lighter. Uh, that that would be <laughs> that would be not uh, not for attractive to most people. Well, you know, I, I, I would just say that, you know, it's not more efficient than exercise. So with exercise, you normally would achieve, you know, higher energy expenditure, but people cannot exercise for the whole day, right? You usually can devote to exercise, you know, maybe one hour, two hours per day, right? You know, maximum that people, normally people would, would do. Um, but this mechanism, heat production, you basically can use all the time. And the beauty of it, you know, that you can increase energy expenditure by heat production just a little bit. But because you know, it goes on the ground all the time and dissipates heat and burns calories, so it just kind of you know eventually it achieves you know the same efficiency or maybe more efficiency than exercise than exercise. So um, that's that's basically the difference. Other than that, um, actually exercise and heat production they are using almost the same uh, metabolic pathways for to burn food, to burn calories, almost the same, almost identical. So everything kind of you know, upstream of mitochondria is the same for exercise and heat production. But you know, we can use heat production kind of you know as we go about our normal routine and it just does it on the background. For exercise, you know, you have to actually focus you know, on exercise. Right. And so would we see an appreciable difference? Um, you know, let's say you you set your thermostat at 70 typically. Um, rather than that, you said at 60 when you go to sleep. Um, would we see an appreciable difference in, um, in sort of energy consumption? So most likely not, because you know what happens you know, when people set you know, the thermostat, you know, lower temperature, they put you know more kind of you know clothes uh, and like you know uh, <laughs> blankets, you know, and everything on themselves, you know. So you know, so this is. Because you know this is kind of you know another way to preserve you know because you know it doesn't feel comfortable, okay. So and you know for our ancestors you know it didn't feel comfortable living you know at colder temperatures. You know you actually have to go through the process of adaptation. So and it, you can be adapted you know living at colder temperatures, but you know nobody would normally venture into this. So when you cold adapt, you know our body kind of you know increases the size of brown fat, okay. So and does some other adaptation kind of adaptations which sort of you know helps to produce you know, more heat, but it takes a month or something like that you know to fully adapt. And while you're doing this, you know you'll feel uncomfortable, okay? So and eventually like you know it's not very practical. You know you wouldn't be kind of you know showing up like you know without dress you know for important meetings and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> so it's all, all the kind of you know complications which involved in that you know which prevents you know. Just kind of you know, dialing down, you know, the time thermostat, you know, and just kind of you know, losing the same amount of, of heat. So it's difficult. Yeah, more difficult than that. I know that uh, your lab is working on. So, so, can we intervene therapeutically to to increase the the heat production in the mitochondria? Yeah, so for that, for that, you know, we need to control those proteins, you know, in mitochondria, which are responsible for heat production. So these proteins, because you know, what happens. Uh, mitochondria is run on electricity. So, and the first step of energy conversion in mitochondria is actually taking food, burning food slowly, and uh, converting food into voltage so across the inner mitochondrial membrane. Okay, they have you know, two membranes, and you know, there is a voltage which is generated across one of the in, in, kind of, you know, internal kind of uh, membrane, which is sort of you know, inside the mitochondria. So and after that, that voltage inside mitochondria is converted to ATP and heat. Okay, 
So the protein which produces heat simply short circuits that voltage and make it produce heat, basically, completely kind of dissipates this voltage, well, dissipates that voltage and makes it produce heat. So there is a special protein for that. So if you can control um, kind of proton current, right, you know, which short circuit that um, uh, voltage, mitochondrial voltage, with some sort of, you know, drug, so that will do the same. So, and unfortunately, like, you know, nothing like that was available. So we knew, like, you know, how induce this proton current by completely artificial way. And actually, you know, that was one of the kind of, you know, um, one of the perhaps, you know, most known anti-obesity medication in the whole history of mankind, which is called 2,4 dimitrophenol, which is dangerous to use, actually. Uh, because, you know, it introduced, you know, this proton weakening in a completely artificial manner in mitochondria, bypassing the native uh, thermogenic pathways, okay? So, but what should be done, we should control native thermogenic pathways, native proteins which are responsible for proton leak in mitochondria, okay? So, and that, that should be developed. So, and because, you know, we couldn't understand really all this mechanism which is involved in that proton leak and how all these proteins work and even their identity, so that's how it was difficult to control native thermogenic pathways. In, in my lab, I'm working on understanding, like, you know, what proteins are involved in mitochondrial proton leak with short circuits voltage, and uh, how to control them therapeutically, you know, pharmacologically. So, and, you know, I hope, you know, that in the future, you know, we'll be able to achieve, you know, a very mild, safe emulation of mitochondrial thermogenesis, which will be helpful for people to lose weight. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So, if I understand this correctly, Yuri, so it's the electric voltage yeah. um, of the mitochondria that that sets into sets it into um, into two different modalities: the ATP production and the heat production. So, if you if you have a dial on the mitochondrium and you can sort of turn it one way or the other, it could behave either way, right? If that's possible. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can think about that, you know, mitochondria is about like a power plant, electrical power plant, which generates electricity. So you can just kind of attract yourself, you know, from all this complexity of like cell and mitochondria and something like that, and just kind of, you know, take a kind of you know, more general and more simplified view. So mitochondria burn uh, food, which is like carbohydrates, you know, and other stuff, you know, like a fuel, basically, and it generates voltage in a very similar way to the power plant, you know, which burns, uh, for example, coal, something like that, and generates um, voltage out of it, right? So, and then, like, you know, imagine it kind of, you know, has, like, like, this electrical outlet where you can plug different devices. You know, one device, you know, can produce work, right? So, it makes us kind of, you know, move, move, uh, kind of, you know, our brain work, you know, our muscles contract and something like that. And another device, you know, just like a heater, which produces heat, nothing else so that's how like you know what's the difference between atp production and heat production if it just kind of you know block different devices into the same electrical outlet yeah so is it possible uh, i i don't know if this is true when you sleep when you're not eating um the is the atp production um lot lower no because, it's not because we have we actually so the thing is you know, we always have fat Right, and we also have you know storage of other nutrients in our body, but fat you know is one of the examples, right? So, um, you know, it can actually 
keep you going, like, you know, for like a month or something like that, you know, for some people it might be like a year, if you consider the amount of fat, you know, and some people accumulate. Uh, fat is used like an you know, energy storage, you know, which can be kind of, you know, used by mitochondria gradually. So, and although, like, you know, the fat is stored, you know, in some particular places, right? So it is hydrolyzed basically by the cells, you know, which store fat. And um, then, like, you know, these fatty acids, you know, they release in the bloodstream and they go everywhere in our body, rich heart, rich skeletal muscle, brown fat, everything. So uh, that's how, like, you know, this fat, you know, it's just like days and days of energy. Doesn't matter where you sleep, you know, or you eat, you know, and, and things like that. So we have it, you know, in ourselves, you know, in sufficient amount. So energy, well, ATP production doesn't necessarily go down, you know, when we sleep. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so this uh, therapeutic mechanism that you're working on, so if you go inside a cell, let's say there are 100 mitochondria in there, can you selectively, uh, how, how much, how much would be there? Thousands. Thousands, thousands. Uh, but can you selectively take some of them and turn them into uh, more heat producing things? Well, you know, perhaps you know, that would be difficult, you know, so I would say uh, perhaps, you know, pharmacological, well, a drug, drug can be developed, you know, which uh, specifically targets particular organs. That would be more easier. Um, like, for example, skeletal muscle usually idles. So, and, uh, so skeletal muscle perhaps you know, can be used you know, very efficiently uh, for heat production too. So, and uh, yeah, so it's much easier actually to target a particular tissue pharmacologically than a, kind of a subset of mitochondria within a particular cell. Um, I don't know if I understand this, Yuri. So, for the mitochondria to produce ATP, it needs ADP and the, and the phosphate as sort of raw materials, right? So yeah. if those things are not available, then ATP production will slow, I would think, right? So, yeah. so what are the implications of that? Is it possible for us to sort of remove ADP and, and phosphate and put that into, <laughs> put that into heat, heat producing mode? No, you know, it wouldn't produce heat because it will, it will not increase, you know, that proton current. Because you know, that proton current, you know, through a specialized proteins, you know, within mitochondria, which short circuit voltage, uh, those proteins, you know, they have to be activated themselves. You know, that proton leak has to be normally, you know, without long chain fatty acids, for example, which are native activators of mitochondrial thermogenesis, uh, which sort of, you know, act upon those proteins, you know, and induce proton current through them. Without fatty acids, you wouldn't have any current, like zero, for those proteins. And altering the amount of ADP available won't change that as well. So we actually need to provide actual activator. So if you limit ATP production, uh, it will not be good because you know you obviously you know may end up you know with the energy deficit in the cell and kind of you know like general damage you know for the entire body. So that's how, like, you know, the best approach is to leave ATP production alone, okay, so and just let it go and control heat production separately. And do not kind of, you know, activate heat production too much as well, because if you do, then you can reduce, you know, that voltage, mitochondrial voltage substantially so that, you know, ATP production slows as well. But in some kind of, you know, boundaries, within certain boundaries, you know, we can plug into the uh, mitochondrial voltage, you know, kind of, you know, these two appliances, you know, and it will be fine. It should be fine because, you know, mitochondria are pretty powerful. So normally, as we see it right now, 
so we consume 10 times less energy that mitochondria are capable of producing. Okay, so that's how you know, there is some limit you know, where we can sort of you know, increase, uh, kind of you know, put you know, more load into mitochondria and they will be fine. But you know, we shouldn't overload them with heat production. So there's a lot of capacity there. So, yes. so, so if, you, if you're successful with this, this uh, sort of therapeutic intervention for, let's say, obesity, would, they, would that be like a tablet? Or some injection? Orally, orally, yes, uh, available, by available medication, basically, that you take, you know, and, um, yeah, and you you just basically have to take it maybe, like, you know, once per day or two times per day, you know, something like that, or whenever you want to, so, and that would be it. So, and you just kind of, you know, increase uh, heat production just a little bit, so you don't really feel um, any like you know increase in heat production really or like increase in body temperature because you know skin can still compensate you know and just lose it right into the environment so but that would go like you know on the background like for the 24 hours and it would burn eventually significant amount of calories as a matter of fact although mitochondria is capable to increase overall kind of energy production 10 times it would only increase uh, heat production uh, like that, you know, by this medication, maybe like, you know, only 1.25 times, okay, only by 25%. Uh, and that would be sufficient to burn approximately one pound per week, just like that, like on the background, without even thinking about that, <laughs> or feeling yeah. mine. The, the weight reduction drugs haven't had a great track history. Um, do, do you see, what do you see from a... Um, um, you know, side effect perspective. Do you do you see any issues? Well, you know, yeah. So from the from the point of side effects, you know, we we shouldn't overdo it. You know, definitely, because you know you can think about you know increasing heat production as about um, stimulation of the same pathway as exercise does, the same metabolic pathways. Okay, so because you know those two kind of you know. Because again, like you know, you 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 basically you know you plugging in like you know your heat production, you know, in the same outlet as my as as kind of you know exercise, right? So and for that reason, for that reason, you can always think about. So you get exhausted, you know, when you exercise for a very long time, very intensively, right? So one of the biggest perhaps no problems not to overstimulate, not to put you know too much load on mitochondria. But overall, we expect that effects of increase of heat production would be maybe. Even kind of, you know, they can bring even more benefits because you know they would replicate in some to some degree beneficial effects of exercise on our metabolism in general. And if you know maybe upregulating like you know all this kind of you know pathways you know for energy production in the body and which would make us you know sort of you know having stronger metabolism, you know, more powerful metabolism, you know, and, and things like that. Maybe reduction of oxidative stress as well, because exercise does that. Exercise has many, many different Kind of beneficial effects. Perhaps you know when you talk about kind of you know how to uh, reduce you know the aging of the body, exercise one of the best things you know you can do for yourself. So we actually hope that maybe we have to see, but we hope that maybe increasing heat production uh, might have you know some of the beneficial effects of exercise. But we shouldn't overdo it. For sure. So this is like you know because you know, too much exercise is bad for you, as you know. So you can you, you shouldn't over kind of you know exert yourself. So the same thing with heat production. So we need to be careful. We need to you know the drug you know that has to be developed. It has to be such that it would be self-limiting. Okay, 
So when people kind of you know go and accidentally take more than needed, it doesn't result you know in uh, adverse effects. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that that would be the challenge. Um, if the product is really, really effective, and uh, people want to, you know, reduce weight very fast, uh, that that may not be the right thing to do, right? You you have to really take it gradually. I would think exactly right. But you know, I think you know from what we currently know about um, the mechanism, how it could be um, activated. You know, this proton current, you know, this proteins which are responsible for heat production in mitochondria. There are drugs you know, that perhaps you know, can uh, limit themselves, meaning that you know, we, we can design drugs you know, which can you know, will be kept at certain maximal level of proton current which it can induce and wouldn't induce you know, more even if you increase the concentration higher. Okay? So we sort of you know, can uh, perhaps, I hope, uh, incorporate into the drug itself uh, this sort of you know, like a limit where it wouldn't go above certain level. So plus to that, you know, I really hope that because you know, we stimulate this native pathways you know, for thermogenesis, you know, there are actual, we, we actually know that there are some uh, mechanisms which tell this heat production machinery that it has to stop because ATP production can be compromised. Because it dissipates too much voltage. So we see like, you know, in, 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 in two of those publications, you know, that you mentioned, we describe you know, certain of those mechanisms, like dependence, you know, because you know the mechanism you know, for heat production can sense, for example, voltage. And if voltage drops, mitochondrial voltage drops you know, significantly. So the proton leak, you know, which dissipates that voltage, is reduced you know, very significantly too, kind of you know, to prevent further dissipation of voltage. So there are certain pathways you know, which we hope will help us you not know, to overcome that, you know, and but again, like you know, this is a technical problem. Which has to be overcame, overcome, and eventually, I hope you know we will come up you know, with something safe, you know, and efficient. Yeah, I mean, part of it is uh, potentially a formulation. So, suppose you have some sort of a sustained release formulation that you take once a month or something like that, right? So, rather than popping pills on a daily basis. Yeah. So, in principle, in principle, it would be great you know, if, for example, you know, we can, you know, it's like you know, with insulin, for example. Taking too much insulin would be dangerous, right? So, but there are some pumps which can be kind of, you know, the small pumps which can be implanted, you know, which reduce kind of, you know, in, well, inject, you know, just correct amount of insulin and monitor blood uh, sugar level, right? So we might monitor, you know, during such injection, you know, heart rate, for example, because, you know, that would be an indication that, you know, sort of, you know, because, you know, we, we expect, you know, that, you know, heat stimulation, you know, kind of like exercise, you know, may increase in the heart rate. Um, and for that reason, you can monitor heart rate and body temperature, for example. And kind of, you know, as soon as it happens, you know, just, you know, kind of, you know, injection you know, stops. So, and that might help, you know, to control it. But plus to that, you know, as you mentioned, uh, so there are actually drugs, you know, which controlled release, right, you know, which you take and, you know, and then, like, you know, they sort of, you know, just kind of, you know, give up, like, you know, the active uh, compound, you know, slowly, okay? Not like, you know, you take, you know, and the whole thing just goes into your blood, but it just kind of, you know, goes slowly, releases a little bit, a little bit, a little bit over the day, and then, like, you know, you don't have, you know, very significant peaks of the drug in the bloodstream, which help you, like, you know, to prevent, you know, the overdose. Is it possible, Yuri? So, if, can you go to a specific organ, like like the liver, and um, I don't know what what you could do, but 
could you affect the mitochondria in that particular organ in some way to yeah. sort of change the behavior? So, in essence, you know, liver, liver is usually, you know, the first organ which uh, kind of, you know, is exposed, you not know, to drug. And liver actually decides as well, like, you know, whether to release, you know, the drug, you know, to a significant degree or just cut it, you know, in pieces, you know, and just, <laughs> yeah. So, usually people kind of, you know, when, when, when they develop drugs, you know, they take a look, you know, at liver, very, very, you know, take a very particular look at liver, you know, just you know, to make sure that, you know, doesn't chop up, you know, the drug, you know, nothing is left after this, you know, in 10 minutes or something like that, and there is no effect at all. So, but liver is exposed, you know, to drugs, you know, right away normally, you know, when you take, you know, orally. And for that reason, for that reason, like, you know, we expect that liver, for example, you know, will be like the one of the first targets, you know, of our medication. So, uh, but that said, like, you know, perhaps, you know, pharmacological approaches can be developed uh, to target, you know, like, you know, the skeletal muscle, for example. So, you know, there are, there are kind of, you know, uh, approaches like that, you know, which can be taken as well. Uh, but that said, you know, liver, you know, by itself, you know, the kind of, you know, the low-hanging fruit, you know, which we can control mitochondria in right away, perhaps. Um, it's so important, you know, for metabolism uh, that uh, it will be already kind of, you know, very important, you know, target tissue. Like, for example, fatty liver, right? So people, you know, who accumulate fat in their internal organs and liver, for example, they often also have type 2 diabetes. And fatty liver is one of the kind of, you know, complicating factors in, in the condition, actually. So as soon as we can burn out all the fat from liver, with this approach, you know, by increasing heat production by liver mitochondria, we can actually fight fatty liver disease and also, you know, perhaps, you know, reducing the metabolic syndrome in a very significant degree. So I really hope, you know, that it's kind of, you know, one of the sort of, you know, low-hanging foods that we can go after. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting research. Um, it seems like it, it could have a lot of different beneficial effects all on that metabolic syndrome arena, right? Right, that's true. Yeah. And uh, I don't know the exact numbers, uh, one-third to one-half of the healthcare costs that we have could be attributed to those things like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and so on. And mm -hmm. so any small effect there, um, still quite uh, billions of dollars <laughs> from a healthcare perspective. Yes, but you know how, why I'm really excited to work on this project is because, you know, the number of indications, potential indications that we can pursue is really immense. So you can you can see even even polycystic ovary syndrome in women, and women infertility can potentially be uh, you know alleviated very significantly you know with, with this drug. So this is kind of you know we also thinking about you know this indication uh, in particular just because you know it would introduce you know so much more joy like you know into the whole family life you know for some people. Um, yeah, because, you know, the same as, you know, so the driving factor, you know, behind, you know, polycystic ovary syndrome is also metabolic. So it's metabolic, uh, so it's insulin resistance, you know, primarily. So, and uh, many of these patients are obese, uh, majority of them, and they have, you know, other kind of, you know, metabolic abnormalities. We expect, you know, that this drug, you know, may help, you know, these patients very significantly. And actually, perhaps, we need to see, but perhaps, you know, can restore fertility as well. So that's how, like, you know, you wouldn't think, you know, about, you know, such a particular application, you know, for this technology, but it may exist, actually. Yeah. So, so I want to finish up with your other paper. Uh, H plus transport is an integral function of the mitochondrial ADP, ATP carrier. 
uh, H plus uh, the hydrogen ion that is basically proton, right? Yes, it's proton car. Yes, this is the same that proton car that I was talking about, which can use production. And so, so what are we finding here? Um, I know that the 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 ADP and the ATP transport is a complex mechanism, uh, but you're finding uh, finding something something slightly different. Yes, well, you know, the, well, it's kind of you know very interesting. Like you know, when you when you publish a paper in you know, a scientific journal, it's sometimes you know, for people kind of you know just because you know the way how you present this, you know, it's very difficult you know to understand really kind of you know the actual uh, importance you know like in a nutshell. But the nutshell is very simple. So when you use a protein which is responsible, you know, for heat production in mitochondria in brown fat, the specialized thermogenic tissue, it was uncoupling protein one or UCP one, right? And that was the first paper. We characterized, you know, how fatty acids activate proton current in that protein, and that's how, like, you know, it was, you know, such an important publication. But the protein. Uh, which is responsible for heat for mitochondrial heat production in all other tissues like skeletal muscle, liver, uh, heart, you know, everywhere. It was not really known. It was really controversial. You know, decades of research went into this, just kind of you know, to end up, you know, with a bit of controversy about you know what proteins is responsible. So uh, this paper actually demonstrates for, for the first time uh, it records you know proton current which induces heat production in mitochondria directly. So we kind of you know, succeeded in measurement of this you know, tiny electrical currents from a single mitochondrion from the cell. Okay, so and we demonstrated, you know, that how we, we could then see like, you know, what happens, you know, when you eliminate certain proteins, you know, with that current. And we demonstrate on this paper that when you remove a protein which is responsible for import of ADP into mitochondria, and export of ATP outside of mitochondria. This crucial protein, which is important you know, for kind of, you know, the whole uh, ATP production machinery. So the same protein actually is responsible for heat production in mitochondria, and it kind of you know, coordinates in mitochondria of regular tissues like skeletal muscle, not thermogenic tissues, but regular tissues. It coordinates ATP production and heat production very tightly to make sure that everything works harmoniously and we don't produce you know, too much heat you know, to overwhelm ATP production and vice versa. So that was kind of you know, identification of actual protein involved uh, and, uh, and also the mechanisms, kind of you know, physiological mechanisms which are in, involved in heat production in skeletal muscle. So that's kind of, you know, despite of sort of, you know, very kind of, you know, <laughs> A little bit sort of you know interesting title, very mechanical title. So this is what the paper is actually about. So so in conclusion, Yuri, uh, going back to um, sort of the heat production, turning on heat production, perhaps uh, with a beneficial effect on weight um, weight loss and related diseases. Um, if you look forward, uh, how many years do you think uh, it will take? Um, for a, a practical product? I think, I think, you know, so as a matter of fact, you know, we have molecules, you know, we have already activators of these pathways. So the only thing like, you know, this is the first, you know, prototypes. Okay, they, they do activate, you know, this native pathways, and this is the first uh, specific activators, you know, this, you know, native pathways, but, you know, they have to be adjusted um, uh, from the point of view of medicinal chemistry. Basically, you know, we need to make sure that they stay in bloodstream, you know, for, you know, long enough time. And, you know, we need to play, you know, with toxicity because, you know, it's very important, you know, they don't have any other targets. 
and things like that. So the process of selection of the final molecules, because you know, we will be introducing modifications you know, to the existing prototype molecules. So the whole process of modification might take us you know, about you know, four or five years before clinical trials, you know, maybe shorter. You know, we'll see it, it, it will depend a lot like, you know, on, you know, maybe we'll be lucky, you know, it will be faster. But, you know, my estimation, you know, it might take us, you know, about, you know, you know, a few years, basically, not not so many. So I, I, I definitely think, you know, below 10 <laughs> to get, you know, to the, to the clinical trials, you know, and actually see what happens, you know, and what kind of benefits, you know, we can we can bring, you know, uh, into the society with this type of drug. Do you have, uh, do you have a preclinical model, like a mouse model or something on this? Yes, right. So we, yes, you know, we, we, we will be running this on rats. So this is basically right now, like, you know, we were using cells as our models, you know, until now and isolated mitochondria. And the mechanism is con uh, uh, confirmed on the level of the mitochondria and the cell, whole cell, right? So we are right now graduating to the level of um, animal models. So, and we'll be running experiments you know, with rats most likely because, you know, they're larger animals, you know, which you know, where metabolism is a little bit more like in humans, you know, because, you know, mice, you know, have super fast metabolism uh, because, you know, they're so small. Anyway, so we'll be running, you know, animal experiments, you know, shortly, toxicity experiments also in animals. And right after that, you know, you perhaps, you know, can kind of, you know, graduate, you know, as soon as we show everything, like, you know, no toxicity and efficiency uh, of the drugs, you know, we will be graduating them, like, you know, kind of, you know, we'll, we'll be speaking with, um, um, Government about kind of you know, granting us, you know, permission, like you know, to conduct, you know, human trials, you know, but before that, you know, many, many other experiments has to be performed, you know, to kind of, you know, to satisfy, uh, to satisfy all the questions about safety and lack of toxicity and things like that, you know, before we engage in that. So it it takes some time. It takes some time. How 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 far are you from um, from uh, clinical trials? From clinical trials, you know, as I said, you know, I think you know, we might we might be aware like you know, three or four years, you know, from clinical trials. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good luck with it. It seems like a very important uh, area. And uh, if you're successful, it will have a big effect. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, I really hope so. It was kind of you know, one of the those, you know, dreams that I had like you know, in the beginning of my scientific career that you know I, I can you know, this whole area of heat production really fascinated me. And also because, you know, I'm a physicist by education, uh, the electricity involved in the process also was really attractive, you know. So I really hope, you know, that I can sort of, you know, bring this kind of, you know, um, my, you know, expertise in physics, you know, to uh, kind of, you know, to bring some progress, you know, into area of energy production in biology as well. So it. It will be it will be kind of you know, realization of my dream, you know, as a scientist. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Yuri. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Absolutely, my pleasure. It was great questions as well. Thank you. Thank you. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.